This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome back to Practical for Your Practice. I am Jenna Ermold and joined by my co-host today, Dr. Kevin Holloway. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Oh, good to be here as always. Welcome everybody who's listening. And we are very excited to also welcome our guest for today, Dr. Brian Pilecki. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And if maybe you could just um, give our listeners a little thumbnail sketch of who you are and what you do and, and why we invited you here today. Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist based out in Portland. I work at a clinic called Portland Psychotherapy, where I'm involved in private practice. Uh, and that includes providing therapy support to clients who use psychedelics. I'm also involved in research on psychedelic assisted therapy. Uh, so the, the main thing is that I uh, am, we're doing a clinical trial of MDMA for social anxiety, which has started. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also am an instructor for fluence training and generally involved in the, um, you know, the movement of psychedelic assisted therapy and what's happening. And that is why we're super excited to have you, because I think um, for a lot of us at the Center for Deployment Psychology, but also maybe for a lot of our listeners, um, most of us don't know a whole lot about psychedelic assisted right. psychotherapy. So um, we were excited to be able to have you come today and, and explain some of what the ins and outs of that. And also really excited to hear a little bit about where, where the research is. But maybe before we keep going, we've already mentioned the phrase psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. What is that? What do we mean when we use that phrase? Yeah, so psychedelic assisted therapy is really a novel form of treatment uh, in that it's not psychotherapy and it's not uh, medication. It's really the combination of a psychotherapy with uh, the experience that's occasioned by a psychedelic substance or drug. Mm. And so psychedelics have been around, you know, forever. Um, a lot of people know that already. They, they have a lot of historical use. Uh, they also have a history in the 60s of being used in medical contexts in the U.S. and other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, research stopped when drugs were scheduled in the 70s. Uh, so we're seeing a resurgence now of looking at the potential for things like psilocybin and MDMA to be helpful with mental health problems. And can you just quickly, um, you know, as we're as we're naming some of these like MDMA, um, what would what might people know that more commonly as or, or think, you know, sort of I don't want to say the street name per se, but but what is what might <laughs> folks know that more commonly by? Yeah. So, you know, the word psychedelic is a, a is used broadly to refer to 
sort of any of these substances that produce an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the most commonly studied recent uh, psychedelics are MDMA, even though it's technically not a psychedelic, but we'll, we'll call it that for today. Um, MDMA is also known as ecstasy or molly. It's associated with, you know, the rave culture and dancing and loving one you know, loving other people and feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. Feel, yeah. Feeling safe, feeling uh, positive. Uh, And then psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. um, That is another highly studied area of recently. Of course, there's other psychedelics like LSD, uh, mescaline or peyote. Uh, and there, so there's, there's many others and, and some of those others are being studied now, but right now, uh, MDMA and psilocybin are, uh, you know, on a track to be FDA approved within the next few years. No. I, so I, you know, I love that you said that it kind of includes kind of a, a wide range of things too, I guess. It, it, excuse me as a little bit of background for myself i do i do some private practice on the side and have like literally close to zero experience at all um with you know working with any clients who have uh taken advantage of uh, psychedelic assisted or, or even psychedelic experiences i have one that i can think of in particular um who was uh, receiving ketamine treatment as part of like a, uh, a an intractable depression kind of a, a treatment. So, I mean, it wasn't involved in it, but it was happening kind of in parallel. Would that be also kind of under the same umbrella? Is that kind of a, a similar thing or is this a different experience? Yeah, ketamine is uh, a dissociative drug that mm-hmm. can produce some psychedelic effects. So, uh, you know, uh, it's being used in the same model as psychedelic yeah. assisted therapy where... The idea is you meet with a couple of therapists or a team and you develop a sense of uh, safety and trust. You're prepared for an experience uh, and then you have some experience in an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, And then there's the therapy follow up. What did you learn from that? What did you get out of that? And how does that relate to your goals and, and the problems that you're looking for help with? I think that's so important because, you know, prior to this experience, you know, like I, again, knew nothing. Probably many of our listeners have had the same experience. And in fact, you know, if the topic came up, it was almost like, ah, it's just an excuse to get high. You know, that, mm-hmm. how can that be therapeutic? And it's not about just go do this substance and now you're better. It, it really is incorporated into a larger program intentionally, um, you know, as part of that treatment. It's not just the thing that's being done. And that, that actually leads into something I really want to make sure we talk about, which is, you know, what is the... Th- theory, if you will, kind of behind why psychedelics might actually enhance or augment um, or assist, you know, some of the therapeutic models that we currently have. Yeah, the therapy is really critical. And, and that's what we're seeing in the in the trials, right? And that's, that is often misrepresented in the media, the drugs get all the attention, right? right. The, the, the right. mushrooms or the, the sexy drugs. Um, yeah, and people have this expectation that oh, I'm just going to take mushrooms and my depression will melt away and everything right. will be better. And they don't realize that there's often a lot of work that needs to be done. And that the, the, the medicine can be helpful in that process, but it, it's not a magic bullet. Um, and, and so that's, you know, having that accurate expectation is really important. And in terms of how does it work or why does it work? 
Um, Jenna, that's a great question, which we don't really know from a scientific perspective. So we have several hypotheses. And one of those, let's say for psilocybin, is that it introduces a flexible brain state that temporarily one is able to have fresh insights, fresh experiences, new ways of being with them, their, their experience or seeing the world, seeing their problems that then leads to um, some, some, uh, you know, some positive changes that they make that are, that are the result of that experience. Um, you know, there's other hypothesized mechanisms like uh, mystical experiences, or in the case of MDMA that with trauma, and this might be, you know, particularly relevant to, to veteran and military populations, you know, when someone goes through trauma, they, they kind of lock that away. They, those experiences okay. get yeah. pushed down because they're too painful. And what MDMA seems to do is they help someone feel safe and relaxed and good enough to, to, to revisit and process those experiences that are otherwise. So it's kind of like enhancing the therapy that, you know, the therapy can happen with or without it, but the medicine seems to make it easier in some ways. Helps facilitate, maybe helps augment it in a way that people can engage with it um, and benefit from what we kind of think of as the mechanisms of the evidence-based, the psychotherapy side of it. I like that a lot. Cause you know, certainly probably any of us, um, but Jen and I and listeners and you, Brian, any of us that have seen clients have certainly encountered clients who, you know, you, you know, kind of what they need to do. They know kind of what they need to do. And for whatever reason, are just, they can't let themselves get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine this, you know, can be at least, you know, one potential option for folks that would otherwise, you know, find themselves stuck, not able to engage. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on the psychotherapy side, we obviously have um, different different evidence based psychotherapies we do. And Kevin and I are prolonged exposure trainers, for example, and we train and do consultation on that for PTSD. Um, And I'm wondering what's involved in becoming more expert in this area. Like, how do you it could be, I imagine it could be an area where things could get dangerous quickly if you weren't well-trained. Right. Um, so what, what does that look like? You know, how did you maybe even use your example? Like what was your path? And I don't know if you sort of supervise or help others along, shepherd others along the way of becoming expert in this. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've been following psychedelics for 20 years and I've, you know, I've been very interested in, in the field from, from, you know, when I first encountered it back in college. And uh, I guess one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that there are different pathways for different psychedelics. Hmm. So for MDMA, uh, there is MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're the main organization that's been funding all the research for PTSD. They have a hundred hour training program that you have to go through, which I went through. Um, And, uh, you know, in order to uh, deliver the treatment that I'm delivering on my clinical trial as a study therapist. So that is actually publicly available right now Hmm. in anticipation of FDA approval, which will probably be sometime uh, next year. Uh, so right now, there are many therapists who are being trained in that. And 
then once you get the training, you'll need to get supervised on a case and then you'll be fully certified to provide MDMA assisted therapy. And then psilocybin will have its own pathway. And so, you know, there's a lot of trainings now that are more informational where you can kind of learn the basics of what this model is, but to actually provide the clinical services, you'll need a specific certification depending mm-hmm. on what exactly you're doing. That's really important. Yeah. yeah and good. <laughs> yeah. And good. Well, and I, it occurs to me again, I mean, we've talked about it as, you know, assisted therapy, um, that there's the psychotherapy side to it. Are there, is there like, you know, particular, um, yeah, you know, psychological therapies that people, you know, maybe should be adept at or have a good background in before engaging in this kind of training too, to make that, you know, kind of round that all out, have the the fuller picture. Based on your podcast, I have a guess, Brian. What <laughs> yes. Uh, you revealed my bias. Uh, I've practiced from uh, using acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's my, that's my, what I find useful. I, you know, I, I love the question though, Kevin, because the, the field really has seen a variety of therapy models. And mm. for me, one of the most interesting things is what therapy is the most effective at uh, leading to therapeutic change. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's been any real, you know, head to head comparison studies, which I think we'll see, we'll see maybe a psilocybin trial where there's two therapy models that are compared to one another. And we can yeah. kind of investigate which ones are, are better. We're certainly fans of ACT on the on this podcast and, you know, in addition to PE and, you know, other evidence-based psychotherapies, but we're also really big fans of data. So, you know, we're looking forward to that um, and data coming out. So what about um, disorders that maybe have the most research supporting use? Um, so there's obviously the types of therapies and the, the types of psychedelics, but what what has what do we have the most data to support, um, you know, targeting this? Um, not going to end this grammatically well at all. So I'm just going to stop. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yes. Uh, And, and, you know, it's important, I think, to understand that we are just at the beginning of the beginning. Absolutely. And that we have, you know, these are a couple of trials, very limited data, but they're very strong and promising. Right. So, you know, I think it's I I try to be very careful when I talk about it because I don't want to over idealize and say, oh, this is great for everything because there are people who will hear that. Um, But I don't want to minimize it either because there is a significant trend we're seeing in these studies. But the, the biggest support right now is MDMA for PTSD. And then psilocybin for depression or psilocybin for the end of life distress that that one experiences mm-hmm. when facing their mortality. Um, those are the those are the big areas. But right now, if you type in psilocybin and clinicaltrials.gov, there's over 100 trials from everything from OCD to fibromyalgia to eating disorder. Uh, I think that, you know, the field is wide open and that's something we'll see in maybe five years down the line. We'll get a better sense of what is this good for? And are there particular folks who shouldn't be involved in this where this might actually be dangerous? Yeah. And I think there was something about social anxiety too. Was that MDMA and social anxiety? Study That's our know. study. And yeah, yeah there, there's been one prior study uh, on a population of autistic adults, uh, but that would be another potential you know, application. I was just going to say that I, I think a lot of our listeners will be providers who are seeing clients in the context of like, um, you know, DOD military treatment facilities or VA facilities. And so my, my guess is we're, we're not 
a lot of our listeners are probably not ones that are going to be necessarily giving this kind of therapy or, or, you know, having it be part of their typical, um, you know, therapy toolbox, but they might be, you know, seeing folks who have either already engaged in psychedelic assisted therapy, or maybe are currently, you know, receiving that therapy in another place. And so like, what, what are some of the most important things that therapists, even if they're not the ones giving it, but, you know, are working with clients who are engaged in this treatment, what are some of the most important things they should know? Yeah, I think, you know, even if you don't plan to to deliver this this treatment, uh, it's it's going to be more and more popular. So it's good to to get informed about the basics. You don't need to become an expert, but you know, just attending a short training or, you know, just reading a bit about it so that you can have better informed conversations with your clients. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that, you know, we acknowledge that there's a lot of stigma around the use of drugs. Right. Um, and all of that is present in this. And so creating a space where clients feel free to explore because if you if they sense that you're not open to this they might not tell you that they're going to go do ketamine on the side and they're seeing you and i think you'd want to know that if they're going to be experimenting or doing things uh so creating that non-judgmental space where you're, you don't have to be an expert, but just to have an open conversation with a client about, hey, what did you, how have you, you know, what did you hear? What does that kind of inspire in you? What are you thinking? And myth busting too, I think on the, you know, um, common, common kind of misperceptions about this treatment. I imagine providers, again, even though they're not providing the care could also kind of address some of those misconceptions and maybe any of those you see as problematic um, as this is getting rolled out more. What are some of those? Like, what are some of the common misperceptions you've encountered, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've had clients share with me that, you know, former therapists have, you know, basically taken a um, a very rigid substance abuse perspective, like, well, mm-hmm. you're abusing hallucinogens and, and or, you know, uh, kind of approaching it from that angle. And, it, you know, indeed, uh, you know, anything has the potential to be abused. And and I think, sure. one, you know, with, with psychedelics, we don't see a dependence outcome in, in the trials or in even animal animal studies. There's not that sort of dependency that we see in other substances. So, you know, it, it, it's it's you know, kind of those, those kinds of statements around, uh, feeling that, you know, psychedelics are all bad and they're dangerous and they, they, they make you go crazy and they stay in your spine forever. And a lot of the things that we were, you know, we, some of us grew up kind of being told with the war on drugs and all that Mm -hmm. is a lot of misinformation. And I do think there is risk to using psychedelics. Um, and you know, it's not like there's, there's, you know, uh, these, these are just, again, they're not magic bullets and there are, you know, they can be psychologically very intense, challenging experiences. Uh, and more so if one isn't prepared or if the set and setting is not controlled in a specific way, right. people can have pretty bad experience, challenging experiences. Can you walk us through, I mean, like, what does that look like in your study um, in terms of what, you know, how is the, you know, obviously these are controlled substances. How is the drug administered and then what happens? And then when does the psychotherapy happen? Just like, that would be great to see just a snapshot of what that looks like. Yeah. In the, in the map, in the maps model for PTSD, there's two therapists present for every session. Uh, we're trying to cut down a little bit on that to make it a little bit more practical when it does get, you know, uh, disseminated because that's expensive. Uh, but you know, we have uh, one or two therapists present, uh, 
And there's the preparation sessions where you're just talking a client through what to expect, you know, what, what's going to happen and kind of instructing them what to do when they receive the MDMA uh, and things like acceptance or willingness, you know, be open to whatever happens and we're here to support you. And, you know, they come in and then the, the day that they receive the MDMA, uh, it's administered by one of us, but there's a study physician that is, is you know, doing uh, medical checks. So we're checking in, we're taking vitals, we're, we're monitoring them medically. There, there hasn't been any, you know, uh, enough in terms of the initial uh, MDMA data to suggest that there needs to be a physician present. It's safe to do uh, without a physician on on premises. Uh, and then, you know, we're we're with the client for, uh, you know, six to eight hours while they have wow. this experience. Um, and so it's a long day for us and, and for them. It's an emotionally draining day. And then we meet with them the next morning. And then we, and then, then, you know, a couple of following integration sessions. So it's sort of this pre and post and model that, you know, basically the, the, the experience is wrapped around with a lot of therapeutic support. It sounds initially kind of resource intensive. That is a criticism of this is that it's expensive. I think the estimate for MAPS uh, you know, the PTSD treatment model as it is in the trials is somewhere between nine and $14,000. Wow. And that mm. that's most of that is the, the, the hourly rate of the providers. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so there is an accessibility issue here. Like, you know, insurances probably won't be able to cover it initially. Um, and so it'll be only accessible to those who have the, the resources right. to pay for it. Yeah kind of scaling, you know, beyond that too. Like how do you scale to the, the need or the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, population. I think well, you touched on this a little bit, but um, you know, future directions you're excited about uh, as you're continuing to see where the research is headed or the application is headed. We, and we talked l- briefly about the barrier of, of resources, but um, what's up upcoming that you're looking, you're, you're excited about. I'm just excited for more data to have more evidence-based, per, you know, conversations because so many of my answers to, to clients or to other professionals is we don't know yet. We don't know yet. And it would be <laughs> nice to know. It'd be nice to know a little bit more and we're gonna. Right. Um, and, you know, the other, I mean, the, the real passion for me in this is that, you know, I'm a therapist. I promote therapy. I think therapy is great uh, for so many people. It's life-changing for, for many people. And there's some people that are current therapies and medications just don't help. And so this is a potential other, almost like completely different uh, option that might help people who haven't been previously helped. Uh, And that to me is the most exciting part of all of this is that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing some of these initial trials. Again, they're highly controlled in small samples, but the results are pretty remarkable that, you know, 67% of the phase three uh, PTSD folks came out with no PTSD diagnosis, 67%. Wow. And then there was even an additional percentage that got you know, some clinical benefit. And I think it was only 12% that didn't get any benefit. Um, so that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Are these folks that had been in other forms of treatment for PTSD prior? Most of them. Yes. Most of them have been there, you know, they've been to other therapies and other, uh, you know, other, they try medication, they've tried therapy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that, I mean, that's 67% of people who had tried other things of the more conventional kinds of therapies that they would otherwise be able to access. So, I mean, that, that's exciting. It is. Yeah, it's really hopeful, I think. And and the cool thing about to the those studies is that in the placebo condition, uh, I forget what it was, but you know, maybe about a third of the people also um didn't have their PTSD diagnosis at the end. So I mean, it's this is the problem of doing the research with psychedelics. Can you imagine an eight-hour therapy session with a placebo? <laughs> right. But, but <laughs> very intense, perhaps very effective. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're just, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to think about. Um, but uh, you know, basically I'm bringing this up because I want to again emphasize the role of the therapeutic support. And yeah. that this is a, a little bit of a different model. I'm an exposure therapist. I'm a CBT and ACT therapist, but this is a little bit different way of approaching things uh, that, you know, that might, again, help some people that traditional therapy hasn't. That's exciting. Thank you for being here. Like, it, it's one of those things I know as we were talking about this and planning for the episode, we're kind of like, man, we, we want to ask good questions. We don't, don't want to sound stupid, but, you know, I mean, it is kind of one of those topics that, Sometimes people already have feelings or expectations or like you said, stigma about. So I mean, we appreciate you kind of explaining it a little bit to us, you know, kind of at the basics. We like to end any of our episodes with what we call actionable intel, which is like, you know, maybe a couple of points. What are some things that that our listeners can like take from this episode and like do right now, something they can implement right now or, or things that they can go read more on um, about this topic or any suggestions that you might have to any of our listeners, what they can do following this episode? Yeah, I would say, you know, the one thing is to, is if you don't know anything about this is to start to educate yourself. And I don't think it matters too much where you go for that. You can take a training and get a couple CEs. Uh, you can, you know, listen to some podcasts. You can read a book. I think Michael Pollan's book for better or worse is a good, you know, introduction for our current times about what this is all about. You know, he kind of went in more objective and, and, uh, I think gives a balanced perspective. There's some flaws with his book, but, you know, overall, I think just starting to read and to, um, just examine your own bias and see what, what's present for you. We all have them. Uh, even if you think you're favorable, like there's probably some hidden biases and, you know, for example, I'll, I'll often ask clients in my, you know, substance abuse history, I'll ask them, even if they're not coming to me for psychedelics, um, you know, tell, they'll say I did acid a few times in college and I'll ask them, well, what was that like for you? And, and very often they'll say, you're the first therapist that's ever actually asked me how it went that didn't just like say oh that's box, okay right? yeah, yeah yeah okay you're you <laughs> um so just to be curious and to be open and to be willing maybe to look at your biases and and try to establish that non-judgmental space with clients because they're going to probably do it anyway whether or not they tell you and i think it's better that they they tell us if that's an area they're exploring yeah I was going to say earlier, the judginess doesn't necessarily preclude what our biases are against. It just means it just cuts off conversation, cuts off communication. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we can definitely link the um, maps training in the show notes. And if there's any others that you think of, Brian, we can certainly link those. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give a, a shout out to, uh, check out your podcast as well. Yeah. Um, which is, which is, what is that called again? Uh, altered states of context. It's a podcast on the intersection of psychotherapy and psychedelics. So we dig into a lot of these issues in, in more depth. If you 
uh, like to check us out. Yeah, I think that's a great. great. If you wanted to listen to a podcast, seems like that's one that's got a lot of good content. So um, I suddenly have a lot of to listen to and to read. So <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> and maybe, so maybe someday, Brian, we can get you to come back and give a longer webinar on this because uh, we we have a series on that too. So we we'd love to maybe have you back in another capacity if you're willing. But for now, we will definitely thank you for thank joining you so us much. today, and um, best of luck in the research that you're doing and the clinical work that you're doing. And and thanks for really leaning into this part of the field and trying to get some good data and answers to these questions that lead to more questions. It seems. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Well, thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah. Great to have you on. We hope to see you next time on practical for your practice and have a fantastic week, everyone. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.